Hi, and welcome to the Bedrosian Center's Book Club podcast, where we read a book every month, sometimes two, uh, to really get at what it means to participate in our communities today. I am Aubrey Hicks, Executive Director of the Bedrosian Center, and I am very pleased to be here with you for a special episode, an author interview with Michael Messner uh, about his newest, latest book, Unconventional Combat, Intersectional Action in the Veterans Peace Movement. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this, Michael. I really appreciate um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and then a little bit about the book? Sure. Um, and thank you for having me, Aubrey. Uh, I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm a professor of sociology and gender studies at USC, and I've worked at USC for a long time, I think since 1987. And uh, a lot of the work that I do is on gender and um, I, the, this new book on conventional combat is really uh, the second book that I've, that I've done in, in very recently that focuses on veterans who become activists for peace and social justice. And I'll say just a little bit about the first one so you can get an idea how the second one developed. The first one is called Guys Like Me, Five Wars, Five Veterans for Peace, and it came out in 2019. And in that book, I focused on five men, really close up on five men's life histories, uh, who fought in five different wars, starting with World War II and then through our, our current and present and recent, I guess, we count Afghanistan as over um, wars. And, um, and, and the idea of that book really was to get deep into some men's stories, to look at the ways in which military service and combat especially impacted them, including PTSD and moral injury and, and what I uh, came to call manly silence, this idea that men stuck in their trauma and don't deal with it. So with a lot of veterans, especially combat veterans, we have high levels of alcoholism, drug abuse, suicide, but also high levels of family violence. And so with these men, um, I was looking at people who had worked through a lot of that over a long period of time, um, had come out on the other side, not, of course, is totally reconstructed, but um, but men who'd, who'd, uh, who'd figured out how to commit their lives to their own health, their own healing, but also service to the community and political action for peace. So a lot of that uh, in research involved my becoming more embedded in this organization, Veterans for Peace. And I'm not a veteran myself, but I'm an associate member of the organization. It's a wonderful organization that's been around for quite a long time. And most of the men and guys like me were active in Veterans for Peace. So right as the book was finishing up and about ready to come out, I was starting to notice in Veterans for Peace that there was a younger generation of veterans who were entering the organization. Veterans for Peace is really dominated mostly by older men, mostly older white men of the Vietnam War era generation. So we're talking about men in their late 60s, 70s, 80s even. Um, they're really impressive men. They've been doing amazing work for many, many years for peace and justice. Um, but this younger generation of veterans who are moving into Veterans for Peace were not only younger, but the what they call post 9-11 veterans. Uh, uh, they were much more diverse. Many of them were women. Many of them were people of color. Many of them women of color. Uh, a, a good number of them were queer identified people. Um, and it's, you know, it's not surprising that, that a more diverse group of veterans should be moving into the veterans peace movement because there have just been more women in the military in recent decades, more women having closer um, connection to combat, 
women military members are actually more diverse racially than men military members are. Um, and of course, there's uh, since the ending of the don't ask, don't tell policy in the military, there are more out um, uh, gay, lesbian, queer, um, uh, transgender, you know, people, veterans. So I, what I saw was this generation of people who are moving into the veterans peace movement were, were bringing different perspectives, different, different experiences, especially experiences of gendered racism in the military, experiences of having been sexually assaulted, dealing with sexual harassment, dealing with, with overt homophobia, um, and that, that kind of experience, uh, once they found each other in the veterans peace movement, uh, became this sort of collective situated knowledge that these, uh, that these younger veterans were bringing to the peace movement. And it, um, they weren't finding it easygoing in Veterans for Peace. Now, the other organization that I, uh, have studied also for this book is called About Face. And that used to be called Iraq Veterans Against the War. And by definition, it's younger vets. It's post 9-11 veterans. And they've been dealing with some of the same issues, but probably a lot better. And they've been dealing with a lot better than Veterans for Peace in part because they, they just don't have, um, the, 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 I don't know if you want to call it the baggage, but the, the older white men who are kind of really see themselves as progressive and radical, and they really are, but haven't really dealt with their own um, sexism, in some cases, their own white privilege in ways that they, they still need to. So I decided to focus on the experiences of six um, of these younger vets. I did some shorter interviews with older white men and veterans. I, I did some participant observation with both of those organizations. But the book, Unconventional Combat, really focuses on the experience of six people, um, most of them women, all of them people of color, BIPOC people, um, uh, one of them a, a gay man of color, uh, one a, a native two-spirit person, um, all of them veterans and all of them very active in the veterans peace movement and all of them bumping their heads up against uh, some of the limitations, especially in veterans for peace. So, so that's kind of the outline of, of the, of the, the book and, 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 it, and it's, uh, or the purpose of the book, I guess you'd say at least. And, and I, I rely a lot on these life history stories to tell the, the broader stories of this, what I hope is a generational transformation of the veterans peace movement, but it's happening in fits and starts and, and not very smoothly in some ways. Well, I mean, it sounds uh, a lot like what you're seeing, what we saw last summer too, the the clash between, um, you know, generational differences and, and uh, what is acceptable protest and, and what is what is not. Um, my mother was was very much of the, the mindset that we should all, if you're protesting, you should be wearing nice clothes. <laughs> You know, it's a very um, sort of 60s, 50s, 60s idea of, of how you protest. Um, and so it's, um, it, you know, the generational differences, particularly with race, class, gender, sexuality, um, these are differences in that we also didn't, you know, socially we talked about these issues very differently. Um 40 years ago than we do today. Uh, yeah, and I think one of the points that I make, especially toward the end of the book, is that the issues that I'm looking at in the veterans peace movement are issues that are really happening all across the board in, in, in terms of progressive social change organizations. And even in, in um, 
uh, I think progressive academic professional associations and, and departments. I mean, my department at USC in sociology, I think we've had some of these same sorts of growing pains and, and discussions about um, white male privilege and, and the, the voices. And, you know, I think that the, the way I like to put it is that, that progressive organizations and, uh, like to think of themselves as, um, trying to create more diversity. And we like to, as older white men and white women, we like to open the door and bring in people who quote, don't look like us. But the next stage past that sort of quest for diversity is the quest for full inclusion. And when we bring people into organizations that previously have not been part of those organizations, it shouldn't surprise us that they have different perspectives, that they have different experiences. Um, and, and I think we need to start looking at that as a resource rather than as a problem. I mean, and the resource that these people that I, that I focus on in unconventional combat bring is this intersectional understanding, this way of understanding, not just war and militarism as a problem as the veterans peace movement always has, but how that connects with climate change, for instance, how that connects with racial justice, how that connects with migrant justice at the border. And there's this very organic intersectional action that these um, new veterans engage in that I think is incredibly powerful and promising. Indeed. Um, so let's go back um, just a little bit. I want you to tell our listeners a little bit about the idea of moral injury. You know, so the the six um, veterans that you interview and, and use throughout the book, um, their stories, um, you know, when you introduce us to them, you give us their history. Um, and that's where this idea of moral injury comes in. Um, what does that mean? Okay, yeah, thanks for asking that question. I think it's super interesting. And it's a very, very important discussion that people are having today, both in the veterans health community, and also in, uh, just among veterans organizations for, you know, like Veterans for Peace and About Face. Um, so most people nowadays know what PTS is or PTSD is post-traumatic stress. You know, it's and and post-traumatic stress is something, it's the internalization of trauma from something that is done to you. So you're sexually assaulted, or you're in a natural disaster and almost die, or you see other people die, or you're in a war and people are shooting at you, or you did you do get shot, you get injured. All of those kinds of things lead to this internalized trauma that might last for years, decades, maybe the rest of your life. And we know uh, that that veterans in particular who are coming back from Afghanistan and, and uh, Iraq uh, suffer in very high proportions of, with PTSD. Uh, moral injury, some people think of it as a subcategory of PTSD and some people think of it as something that's like di different but parallel. But, but moral injury essentially is the internalization of trauma, not from something that was done to you, but from something you did to others um, or that you participated in doing to others. So the, the, the feeling of, um, of shame that a lot of veterans deal with from having killed uh, enemy combatants or, or drop bombs on people or, you know, it's, it's so interesting because even we're finding, um, you think of, of drone warfare as this totally disembodied uh, technological form of warfare, where there's people sitting in trailers, you know, in um, uh, Arizona or, or in Nevada, killing people somewhere in Pakistan or something like that. But what, what we're learning is that 
even drone pilots who are sitting in those trailers and then getting out and going home to dinner with their families are suffering from some form of moral injury. And, 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 and moral injury is really shame. It's this feeling with the feeling of, I was brought up as a good person. Thou shalt not kill. We don't kill other people. We don't hurt other people. And what you find is not only are you killing other people who might be fighting against you, but, but a lot of people who end up get, get, getting killed in wars and in America's wars uh, are, are civilians and and um, how do you deal with that? How do how do you, how do you deal with that feeling that you have in yourself? Uh, uh, how do you feel like you're still a good person? So a lot of the people that I've interviewed, both for guys like me, a guy by name Bernie Sanchez, who fought in World War II and killed somewhere between eighty and hundred Germans, up until his death, he was dealing with the shame and the sort of moral injury of, of what does that mean about me as a person. Um, and, um, and even if you didn't pull a trigger, if you were part of the force that, you know, engaged in actions that killed a lot of civilians or killed a lot of other people, how do you deal with that? So, um, so the, so the people that I'm interviewing that I interviewed for unconventional combat, some of them were in combat, you know, directly, uh, but, um, all of them were engaged in, uh, in the military during times when the United States was invading other countries and killing other people. And, and and so it's a very live discussion of like, how do you deal with your own moral injury, but how do we do this collectively as a group? How do we deal with our own collective injury? And I think those of us who were not in the military need to think very seriously about this, how we send other people to do this job, quote, for us, um, although it might really be for the oil companies or something, right? But, but supposedly it's done in our name and we pay for it as taxpayers. What is our responsibility for the thousands and thousands of people who've been killed in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan um, by our troops and by and 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 so it's how does that affect our people who sent over there, but also the rest of us, the, the rest of our responsibility. Um, we can't all cordon ourselves off from what our country's military is doing in our name. You know what you just said. Um, uh, to our listeners, um, I highly recommend you buy the book and and read the prologue. I think what what you say in that about those who walk away from Omalas is uh, quite brilliant. So I don't want that to spoil that. I, I would like our listeners to read that. You know, I think that's really a really great place to start. You know, in terms of both generational differences. You know, um, when we're talking about Vietnam and you're talking about veterans for peace, so many of the members are uh, Vietnam vets. That is a war that for a long time, you know, there were activists against the war, but there was a lot of confusion about why we were there. And, you know, I think the same thing uh, with the more recent wars. However, I think in terms of the media and attention, we realized quicker uh, the quagmire that it was, although, you know, it has been 20 years since we've been in Afghanistan, and the way we're pulling out of, of Afghanistan seems even less thought out than when we pulled out of Vietnam. And I wonder how much of that also affects the people in, in the book, and these generational differences, how much is more open. So one of the things I want to get at is... Um, you know, you've already talked about the idea of intersectionality. So um, the idea that um, you can see the, all of the intersections, the, the crosshatches where different parts of your identity and experience overlap. I think the other thing that is really interesting 
is the idea that this younger generation is wanting a little bit more futurity, um, looking a little bit further ahead in terms of planning and, and what they're looking at. Like their idea of what peace is, is more complex because it's looking a little bit further. Would you agree with that? I think the older vets also are very forward looking. Um, and I think there's a there's an understanding that a lot of the older veterans have that's pretty sophisticated in terms of how things mesh together. Right. But um, the way I like to describe it is that if you think of, of people's actions in, say, a peace organization, I mean, the, the mission there is to work for peace and to work against war. And all of them can see, at least theoretically, the connection between the, the quest for peace and the quest for having a clean environment and, and stopping climate change. The U.S. military is, is the biggest institutional contributor to carbon in the atmosphere, for instance. Uh, wars, you know, destroy local habitats and, and so on. So, I mean, people see those connections. But the older generation of veterans tends to, if you think of like a coalition politics of having like one foot in your organization and then one foot in some other organization, one foot, you know, in racial justice activism last summer, you know, um, one foot in climate action work that the older generation sort of keeps their weight on that left foot that's still planted in the mission of the organization for peace and, and, and uh, anti-militarism. The younger generation tends to be a little more, bit more nimble and shifting their weight out toward these other um, uh, actions. So when, when Black Lives Matter uh, and racial justice really exploded in American cities and towns all over the country, the younger veterans, I think, were really out there in, in force uh, working in those organizations and, and for sort of Black Lives Matter and other racial justice actions. Um, and that's really you know, impressive, I think. But, you know, whether you have sort of more of your weight in the organization sort of emphasizing the organization's mission or more of your weight shifted out towards doing these other kinds of things, um, there are costs and benefits to, to those kinds of things. So, so the younger people, I think, are much better at building coalitions and bringing their anti-militarist uh, understandings and, and knowledge to these other organizations and other actions. Um, my, migrant justice at the border, for instance, Wendy Barranco and, and Brittany Ramos de Barros, two really wonderful young, young people that I focus on in the book who were, who did some really heroic things at the U.S.-Mexico border during the time when U.S. was really stepping up under Trump anti-Mexican immigrant and, and Central American immigrant uh, actions and putting kids in cages. And, and they were at the border with this coalition of people who um, are mostly a sort of religious-based uh, uh, social justice organization. And, and they brought that kind of understanding of the militarization of the border and how that connects with the social justice actions for the people at the border. But the problem with kind of leaning in so much to those kind of actions is that it might kind of dissipate the mission of the organization, the anti-militarism organization that you're a part of. So I think there's a tension that I, especially in the uh, chapter four, I think of the book that I that I really try to flesh out that uh, it's not an absolute difference between the older and younger generation, but the younger generation being more diverse racially, gender, sexually brings that experiential level of understanding of these connections and and this gut level commitment to working at the border, working against sexual assault, 
working again uh, to, to stop climate change, working for um, uh, Native American issues, for instance, at Standing Rock. I, you know, I have another sort of little case study of the veterans at Camp Standing Rock in 2016. And it, I think it's an open question uh, what the Veterans uh, Peace and Justice organizations are going to look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years. The older generation is older and they're they're not going to be around forever. I mean, they're still doing impressive work, but they're, you know, they're just not going to be really at the center of the story for much longer. This younger generation is. And um, what kind of, um, uh, how are they going to be able to sustain and redefine these veterans peace organizations in the next 5, 10, 15 years um, is an open question. Uh, but I find it really promising that they're so good at connecting to other things, but at the same time, I think the danger is that they, they might lose that sort of central mission of their organizations in dissipating their, their efforts. There are a lot of them. There's, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of people. We're probably right. talking about at this point, you know, a few hundred who are really active. Yeah. So to go back to the, the two organizations, the, the main two organizations that you focus on in the book, Veterans for Peace and About Face, your cover, the beautiful cover of this book actually comes from a poster from About Face, right? And their support for Black Lives Matter over the summer. And I think what you're, you're getting at is is the, in terms of the future, um, you talk a lot about how Veterans for Peace is, is a little bit more resistant to sharing power with, you know, between the generations, whereas About Face is a little bit more able and nimble to do that. And they're thinking about combining forces, is that? Well, that may or may not happen. That's an open question. Um, I think there's some people, especially in Veterans for Peace, who would like to see that happen. There are some people in About Face who are open to the idea, but they feel as though Veterans for Peace people have to do a lot of internal work before they're going to move to that next level. Now, I just engaged in a couple of really interesting conversations over the last two weeks. You know, first, the Veterans for Peace had their annual uh, national convention, and it was held um, virtually online because of the pandemic. Uh, they organized a, a, uh, the opening plenary around questions raised by my book, and I was invited to moderate. Oh, wow. So three of the, the women in my book were on this panel, and, um, and we talked about the um, issues raised in the book about inclusivity and, and, uh, and gendered racism in the organization and the ways in which some of these people in, the, in unconventional combat have already decided that it's not worth their time to, to spend much of their energies trying to uh, work with Veterans for Peace, that they're going to work with About Face or with other organizations. And then the other thing was on um, on Sunday, this just this last Sunday, I was invited to join the Veterans for Peace book club. Uh, and they had been reading my book and they had spent two, the two previous Sundays talking about my book. And then they invited me in for the third Sunday. Oh, wow. And we're not talking about a huge group, but but importantly, it was all white veterans who have been working together for about the last uh, six or eight months, I think, uh, reading works on white racism and trying to deal with, um, you know, people of color tell us, you know, um, white people, you've got to talk with each other. We can't be doing all the hard work of telling you how to be anti-racist. And, you know, in, in the fields that I've worked in a lot, a lot of the same messages from women, you know, men, 
you know, you need to talk with other men and, and talk about sexism, talk about masculinity, um, talk about these issues with other men. And don't leave it up to women to do all the heavy lifting and, and leading you around and telling you what you should be thinking and doing and how to reform yourselves. So this group is a group of people who has taken that call very seriously. And I had a really nice, productive discussion with them um, around, around issues raised in, in the book. So I think that that's kind of the choir there, though. I mean, it's a it's a subset, a small subset of people in Veterans for Peace. And I don't know how open a lot of the other people in Veterans for Peace are to having those kind of deep, deeper, self-reflexive kinds of conversations about racism and sexism and, and homophobia. But it is part of the conversation. And the extent to which some of the older vets really take that seriously and talk with each other about it, that will determine how conversations with uh, veterans for peace and about faith go in the next year or two or five or whatever. But I mean, I, I know there's, uh, you know, some people in veterans for peace would really like to see the merger happen and they'd like to see the organization called about face colon veterans for peace. So that veterans for peace kind of comes in under the umbrella of about face with the idea that that's the future of the, of the movement. So, uh, so we'll see what, what happens, but uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about it. Um, you know, these are all very impressive people who are very committed and, and, and really have put their uh, lives on the line in some ways, you know, to, uh, to, to work for peace and social justice. And it's no big surprise that, you know, we even go back to the 60s and some of the student movement organizing in the 60s. And, you know, the women found that the, these men radicals were very, very sexist and you wanted the women to just, you know, bake cookies and take notes. And so women had to really work hard to get their voices heard even among quote unquote, very progressive men. So I think that some of the same sorts of issues are happening now, but it's not just about gender, it's about other things as well. Right. Have you seen some of the same backlash that we're seeing sort of in politics right now with the anti-CRT, sort of the legislation that we've seen in 20 something states at this point? Are you seeing that kind of backlash or is it just a hesitancy? It's hard to say. I mean, there's certainly hesitancy. Yeah. Um, there, there's a certain kind of entrenched, uh, probably white male, um, kind of stubborn sense of. Um, this is how we know, do it. <laughs> about racism. We've talked about sexism. Now let's move on and get back to the business of stopping wars. You know, and um, so I think there's there's certainly some of that in in there. I, and I don't know. I mean. It, it, as it turns out, just as with this book club, the people I end up talking with are the ones who really want to deal with these issues. You about, yes, exactly. So they're obviously people I haven't talked with, and I'm not really quite sure what all of their uh, opinions are. Yeah. I don't want to, to share too much because I actually, I, I think readers um, should really read this. The, the stories of these six amazing individuals, they are doing amazing work right now. And I was particularly moved by um, the part where you're talking about what they've learned in the military and can use for different social movements, not just the, the peace movement, but, um, you know, whether you're a medic and you can bring that to protests or um, uh, what was it? Um, oh, gosh, about um, knowing where, you know, the police are going to form a perimeter and those sorts of things that real strategic thinking that, you know, um, 
isn't necessarily part hasn't necessarily been part of those movements it's a it's a really beautiful way of taking something that you've learned and applying it in a different way for a completely different purpose yeah it, it was really interesting to me too and you know the military and their recruiting makes quite a big thing of uh, you know how they're going to teach young people skills that are transferable to the labor market and sometimes that happens but oftentimes it really doesn't happen right. uh, but but you do still learn things sometimes in the military that are useful and and several of the people that I interviewed talked about that and Monique Salhab who's recently uh, been transitioning and, uh, and and is renamed themselves uh, Zamil Salhab but it's Monique in the in the book because I didn't know that yet yeah. um, uh, is an activist in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and and I think the story you were referring to there is when Monique was out with the coalition uh, to confront um, the arrival of the right wing fascist group, the Proud Boys, in town, and was able to use some of their knowledge from having served two stints in Iraq to understand how to mobilize in ways that are going to make people safer, mm-hmm. how to sort of read the police, you know, they're, they're getting body language. Yeah. If I had a bottle of water for a couple hours, they might be getting angry and short tempered, you know, that, that there's a way to sort of read the field. And then Wendy Barranco with, with all of her uh, training from having been a, a combat medic in, in Iraq and having dealt with horrible, horrible things in Iraq, uh, death and blood and, you know, gore in ways that most 18, 19 year olds are, are are certainly never experiencing. I sure didn't. But she brings that to her work in Los Angeles with, you know, working with uh, during the pandemic to try to, to develop uh, community based responses to um, helping people who are very, you know, underprivileged and don't have direct access to medical care, food, and so forth. And then also working at a clinic on the Mexico side of the, of the border, a health clinic uh, that, that serves mostly migrants who are kind of stuck there at the border. And there's, there's these incredible medical skills that she has there that she's putting to really humane use. Yeah. I think it's a remarkable book, remarkable individuals, um, and and the story of collective action and really, you know, taking in so much of the history, you know, where we didn't used to talk about colonialism necessarily as much as we are in political protest as we are today. And particularly important to see the the connections between military colonialism and white supremacy. It's just... Um, really fantastic to see these people thinking about these issues and really putting into practice, you know, better ideas for better world. You know, there's a lot of trauma in this book. And there's a lot of hope that that's how I feel. I feel really, I felt really hopeful after this, even though, you know, all of these individuals faced a lot, um, faced a lot, and are facing a lot, how much they are working uh, towards, towards a future. Well, I'm really glad to hear that you had that kind of take home from it. It's it's very difficult information to kind of process and take in. But at the same time, I was always really inspired by each of these people and what they worked through and the ways in which they worked through these things individually and together mm-hmm. to develop more healthy lives themselves, but also to really commit themselves to changing 
the world that they live in in ways so that others don't have to go through what they've gone through. And, and, and I mean, to, to me, that's the really hopeful thrust of the story. Yeah, um, exactly. When Monique, uh, she says, this is my boundary, you know, this, so I'm not going to, I'm not going to continue. If you want to change, I will join. But um, I mean, that alone is a, is a, an amazing step. So it was great. Is there anything that we should talk about that we haven't already? Well, um, I don't think so. I I think, you know, maybe just one thing I would add uh, just very briefly is that, you know, I'm not a veteran. I I mentioned that I'm an old white man with privilege as as a tenured professor. And it was really, I felt really honored that these people trusted me with their stories and it was. It really was important for me to get it right, and um, and each of in chapter two, I have a sort of a several page long portrait of each of them. I sent the drafts of those to them because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't saying something that was wrong or that would be hurtful to them because it's very difficult stuff. They're talking about having been raped, having been sexually assaulted, sexually harassed, and so forth. And um, and in most cases, they said, no, this is fine. One or two times people said, just take this sentence out or don't mention that person's name or something. Right. So, uh, and, and I feel still now that the book is out, I feel a real responsibility to continue to get it right and to, and to when I, you know, I do a public presentation like I did the other day with, with three of them, it really warms my heart because I feel like I'm giving um, helping to create a forum for them to share what they're already doing in the world and amplify it. So I think all of us, you know, who are, are in positions of privilege, there are various ways that we can engage in our own critical self-reflexivity individually and t- together. But also, it's really important to listen. It's really important to take seriously the voice of the people who, um, who are like the ones in my book, but certainly not just them. I was going to say, is it, um, I'm trying to find my notes. Of course, I'm not going to find it. Uh, it was Wendy who said, just let women lead. Period, she said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so yeah, I encourage uh, all of our listeners to to go buy and read this book. Or borrow it from the library, but read this book. Um, and listen to these these uh, wonderful stories. Um, and I could, could add to that, um, there's a website unconventionalcombat.com and it's got some good information on it about organizations and about the veterans that I uh, interviewed for the book and some other sort of ancillary things that people might find useful. Okay, great. Well, I'll put a a link in the show page. Michael, thank you for joining me today and and spending a little bit of time. Uh, It was really, really well worth it for me. Um, And uh, I hope for our listeners as well. So thank you very much. Thanks, Aubrey. It was a pleasure. All right, that's all we have time for today. Um, Thank you for listening. For links, like I mentioned, um, to some of the things we talked about, go to our show page, which is bedrosian.usc.edu slash book club. If you like this, please share it and uh, leave us a review if you can. Uh, That will help other people find this. Please read the book if you haven't. And uh, we will see you, well, hear you, listen to you, find you in uh, a few weeks. Thanks.